Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I will be speaking with Jason Sharon. He's the owner and broker of Home Loans Inc. Thought for the day, what are the most effective ways that you can use a mortgage? And we're going to talk about a bunch of different terms. We're going to talk about things like PMI and break them down, kind of debunk some of the myths around them. And we're also going to talk about ways to transition your wealth using mortgages to your children um, to help them out in a, in a more effective fashion than a simple cosign. So that's the thoughts. Break those things down. And the action is use some of the ones that apply to you to help grow that wealth. I'm not saying implement them all. They're not for everyone. But if you use them effectively, they can be great wealth generation tools. So much for joining us again. I appreciate um, it. It's a lot of fun the first time. Yeah, excited to be back. Super. Uh, I I wanted to before we dive into this. I, mean, I want to talk about you know the best ways to leverage debt, specifically mortgages. Um, can you just kind of give people you know who you are? You know, tell me a little about your company as well, and, and um, help people understand why I would even want to have someone like you on this on the show. Sure, absolutely. So my name is Jason Sharon. I'm a, the broker and owner of Home Loans Inc., which is a small little boutique mortgage brokerage here in Charleston, South Carolina. We've got 25 to 30 employees. Um, some of the things that I've been recognized, some of the places I've been recognized by recently, um, I was recently you know, picked up on Forbes.com for one of my three mortgage books that, books that I've written. Um, they interviewed me and you know published an uh, article that I wrote on artificial intelligence in the mortgage industry. Um, second, you know, I was featured a couple months ago by um, Yahoo Finance. And last year, I was on the Money.com Best Lender list, and then a number of different mortgage-specific industry periodicals, Mortgage Professional America, that kind of stuff. Awesome. So, I mean, it's I think your ability to understand not just mortgages, but how it blends into the general investment landscape as well is 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 awesome. That's why I wanted to have you on to really talk about, okay, you've, you've done one on this is the lay of the land mortgage-wise. Now I wanted to do kind of a, a follow-up. Focusing on, all right, I want to get my first mortgage. Whether I'm doing it by myself or my parents are helping me, how do I re- what are some things I should think about as I'm getting this mortgage to truly make it like an effective mortgage? Uh, let's, uh, let's start with, we were talking about it before, uh, PMI. You know, the, the thought about PMI, how much you're putting down, avoiding it, and, and just kind of thinking it all the way through. Just kind of give me your thought process on that. Sure. So PMI 101 is private mortgage insurance is money you pay every month that protects the lender in case you default. So everybody thinks, oh, this is a horrible thing, I don't want it. And true, it's it's money that you spend that doesn't afford you any protection whatsoever. However, it's very cheap insurance. And how I teach people to use, to leverage that, is you can, it's, how, what's the highest best use of your dollar, right? You, so you could have a larger down payment and have no <clears throat> PMI. But if you used a smaller down payment and had private mortgage insurance, would that would the money you save from the down payment could that produce more income for you than the cost of the PMI? And what PM, do you need to have PMI? Like, what's the threshold? Sure. So the threshold is is twenty percent down or eighty percent equity in the, in the property on a refi. If okay. you have if you have twenty percent down or eighty percent equity on a refi, then you don't have private mortgage insurance. So if you went and purchased, you know, a typical conventional 
minimum down payment is 5%. There are some 3% down options, but let's go with 5% to make because that's the most common. Um, if you have you put out 5% on a $400,000 house, let's say it's $20,000, you're going to have PMI. Uh, P, if you've got you know, you know decent credit, you know, 700 or above, your PMI is probably be 0.25 to maybe 0.35% per year. So you're looking at PMI of you know, $80 to $100 a month. So let's say instead of putting down 20%, so 20% of $400,000 is eighty grand. You only put $20,000 down. Now you got $60,000 that you're not putting into the house. Mm-hmm. They can take that $60,000 and invest it with you. And I bet you with $60,000, you're going to make it more than $80 a month. <laughs> I can do better than 0.25. <laughs> so so it, it's a no-brainer. I mean, what's the highest and best use of my dollar? Do I want to just give that money to a financial institution and have yeah, – sure, it's equity in your house. It's not like you're giving it away. But could you use that money for and, and make a whole lot more out of it? Right. Now, what about the, the, the counterpoint someone will make, which will be, well, it's going to be that 0.25, but then also the the mortgage rate or whatever it is, let's just say it's 3% on top of that too. So it would be 3.25% that you've got to hurdle. And it's, you know, compounding, you know, interest and, and all that. Does that change your thought process, thought process on that at all? No, I mean, so a 20% down mortgage and versus a 5% down mortgage might be an eighth of a percent difference. I, I would rarely see it be much different than that. Um, if you got to where you're putting on 30 or 40%, you could see a significant change. You may be a quarter to, you know, to half percent change in your mortgage. But if you're only, you know, the difference between 5 and 20% on a primary residence is minimal. Now, the difference between... For an investable property, if you buy an investable property, the difference between minimum down payment on that is 15%. 15% to 25%, there is a significant difference in interest rate. So if you're talking about investable properties, that's a, that's a different scenario. But primary residence or you're trying to help your children buy a primary residence, mm-hmm. there's minimal difference with that. Gotcha. So I'm glad you brought up helping your children buy because that was another area where you were talking about down payments, parents potentially helping, and then the growth of the actual asset itself and gifting. Um, take me through what that, that looks like in your world. You can use kind of a scenario or just talk in hypotheticals, whatever you think. Sure. So just like you, I'm, I'm very passionate about helping my clients build wealth, right? right. I'm not a financial advisor. I kind of consider myself a debt advisor, right? How right. do you use debt? How do you leverage debt to make money? So let's say you've, you're, you're, you have a primary rest. You're, you're, you've got some money to, to invest and you want to help your adult children. Let's say they're just started college or they're maybe they finished college and, and they, it's time for them to buy primary residence and you want to help them out to help build their wealth. So you can gift them money and, you know, gifting on a mortgage is completely different than IRS gifts. So there's, there's no, you know, no cross contamination there. It's, it's two different, two different realms, but you gift them money. Let's say you gift them 5% for their down payment. So now they buy a $400,000 house and let's say they, they, qualify based on their income. Um, you can co-sign, but that's a different discussion. You give you give them twenty grand. Now they invest that twenty thousand dollars into that house. They are they've got their payment, they're living there, they're gaining equity by making their payments. And maybe there's some PMI, but you know it's less than a bucks a month generally. And that house is growing historically for the last you know d- you know decade or so, house have grown, you know, five to ten percent per year. You know, this year, you know, it's hit eighteen percent. Mm-hmm. So you take that that twenty thousand dollars, and you're leveraging forty thousand dollars worth of debt. I mean, four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. So now that four hundred thousand dollars house next year is worth four eighty, off of a twenty thousand dollars investment. Mm-hmm. 
Not to mention you pay down the pay down the principal a little bit. And then let's say you go leverage that and start buying investment properties. Let's say you, you put fifty thousand dollars into a two hundred thousand dollar investment property. So now that you put fifty thousand dollars in, you bought a two hundred thousand dollar investment property, you're you're making some rental income on it, you're getting some some payment down on the principal, but then that two hundred thousand dollars is worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars next year. So you've got fifty thousand dollars of equity growth on a fifty thousand dollar investment in twelve months. Right. And then after that it's just you know, gravy. Right. I like it too because if you were to because and it's kind of fun having you here talking about real estate and I can talk about the markets. When I see parents give to like a joint account with their children, they're they're both on joint and anything that we make is taxable in the market. So and, and when you think through like where are the tax headwinds and where are the tax tailwinds, if I were to take that twenty thousand and let's just say I made twenty percent. You know, that's fine. There's no leverage in it, which which is a different story, too. I, I, we don't use leverage. It grows 20%. So now I've got my, you know, uh, 24000 That's that's there. But that money is taxable. Typically, the income that comes in is going to be fully taxable, and there's going to be capital gains. Versus in your scenario, if that property grows, you have, and something they say they sell it. Let's just say that it was a, a student, because I see a lot of people. I'm from Los Angeles. So we would see a lot of students come in. Um, go to UCLA, which is where I went, and their parents would buy them a condo. And they would let them sit in that condo because real estate in Los Angeles is always going up. Um, they'd buy it in their freshman year and they'd sell it their senior year. You have four years of appreciation. They would, I don't know whose name they would put it in, but you would usually get that tax break when you go, if the, you know, 250000 per owner. And, you know, if, it would pay for their college. And I was always amazed but I didn't hear about that until after I had left. I started to see like, oh, this is what people had done. And I look back, that's what people would do, the, the more wealthy families. So to your point, that'd be a way that you could you get a tax tailwind with an investment as opposed to a tax headwind if you're putting it directly into the markets and leveraging debt. Yeah, you're 100% correct on that. You know, the, obviously, we're del- delving more into a CPA type uh, area, but you know, the, the basics of, of capital gains for a home that you're selling is if you lived in the house for at least two of the last five years, then $250,000 or $500,000 if you're a married couple mm-hmm. is, you know, it's not subject to capital gains. Right. So if you bought the house and you, you know, either you financed it with your child or you bought it and pay cash for it or whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the basis, you know, say you bought it for 250 and then four years you sold it for 300, that's, you know, $50,000 and is well under. Let's say you, you, just hit you know a home run, and you know he, he they lived in it for four years. I'm mean, gonna say they're working on a doctorate. Like I bought a condo you know two years ago in Auburn. My son's going to, is in pre veterinary medicine, so he's gonna be there for eight years. So that's gonna grow for eight years. So as long as he lived in it, he's on the deed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know for at least two of the last five years, then that'll the the max growth that I'm you know, the minimum growth that I'll be taxed on is two fifty. So as long as and, and let's say it sold for I had 260, so I'm only paying tax on ten thousand dollars worth of growth. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. That's I think it's those, those strategies to me. As people look to, I mean, a lot of times there's they get advice. People get advice in a vacuum. They, sure. They'll talk to you and they'll talk through it, and they're like, "Oh, I got to come up with the money." And it, but being able to have a conversation like this, where you know I can look at it and I can tell someone, "Sure, give you know why not give give your child twenty thousand? But to your point. What's the best use of that dollar? How are you going to actually make the most money with that investment? And if you have a child that's going to school, trying to buy their first uh, 
place, it's like, you know, real estate is an investment. I know you live in your investment, right? Sure. But it is an investment. It does go up, and I mean, especially if you live here in Charleston, it goes up. It's yeah, like skyrocketing. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous because um, the jobs market. But you, yeah. you do have to understand your exit. Just like you advise your clients mm-hmm. on, on any investment, you have to understand your exit plan before you enter. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're buying a house for your, your, if you're buying a house with your and your kids, you're going to put your kids on it. This is a mistake I've seen recently. Um, a person bought a house and they put their kid on it because they didn't it, at their demise. They didn't want their kid to be worried about stuff. They wanted it to be their kid's house. Right. So let's say you buy your house, you buy a house, you put your kid on the deed. You're living in it, so it's not your kid's house, but it is technically because he's on the deed. And then you you die ten years later, and now it's the kid's house. He did not live in it for two last five years, mm-hmm. so he's going to have capital gains tax. So let's say you live in the house for 10, 15, 20 years. That's a lot of growth that he could possibly be right. taxed on. So in that type of case. You would get with your, you're my friend Casey, and you know to get a trust set up and then have that house put in a trust. Right. So that way, whenever the whenever that you're at your demise, that the the valuation for capital gains is the value of the house at your death, not whenever you put your son on the deed. Because whenever the son owns the house ten years ago, that's his basis for the capital gains growth. So it really depends on. On the the collateral that you're buying, or the the investment mm-hmm. that you're putting money into, and what your long term plan is with it. Right. Now, I, I like I like the we we need a bigger table. I got this little stool, and we're going to need more people <laughs> <laughs> and more people kind of go through. We feel like we might need some graphics too, because they're. I mean, when people look at it, these are real numbers that have real like these significant returns for mm-hmm. family members. I love the idea of of using, you know, thinking about PMI in a different way. And really using the dollars and letting them grow. I love the idea of gifting the down payment to children um, because it does help them really kind of get started. I think so many people struggle with just getting into a home. And the idea that you have to throw down 20% to even get in, for a lot of parents, they're like, I can't, I can't put that much down. Um, but if they, if they could put down maybe a smaller amount and the child could actually you know, support the cash you know, payments, you know, it does give them a chance to get into an investment. That investment can grow, and then if it, over time, they outgrow it. Say they start with a condo, and they they have a family that's too big. At least there's some growth there that will allow them to then roll up to the next house, which I think is very intelligent. Um, are there any other strategies that you kind of see best use of, of you know, debt, at least in the mortgage world, that families should take advantage of? So, if someone has a lot of of consumer debt, you know. Re, um, Cars, credit cards, student loans, whatever. Um, right now, it's amazingly good time to cash out, refinance on your property, get that you know, pay off that debt. Like I, right now, I've I've got uh, a loan from Mike and Michelle that will be closed next week. That we're say we're raising their interest rate. It's, it's it's crazy. So they're at a lower rate today than I'm going to put them on their loan that we close next week. They're going up in rate and they're going to pay off all this debt. They're going to save eighteen hundred dollars a month. In their consumer debt payments, wow. I'm going to, and I've coached them and given the numbers of hey, I want you to keep. You're already paying this eighteen hundred dollars a month. You're on top of your mortgage payment. You know the, their total payments like three thousand dollars a month for for all their debts. So I'm like, I want you to take that three thousand dollars a month and pay it towards the new mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay off their their eight years into this thirty year mortgage. So they got twenty two years left. If they do what I tell them to do. And keep paying that three thousand dollars a month towards this new thirty-year mortgage. They're going to pay off this house in nine years. Wow! 
So in nine years, they're going to be debt-free, have you know a $400,000 house, which would be a lot more in nine years, um, and I mean, their, their life's going to change by leveraging the debt in the, the smart manner. I like it. I like it. And I think a lot of times you just, you have to slow down enough because I think to your point, people would say like, the, the rate's higher. I'm, I'm, I'm automatically off. Right. But you got to look at the numbers, you know, like you're, you're as that debt coach, you have to look at the numbers and say, well, here's all the debt that you have. Here's all those different pieces. It's almost like our Dave Ramsey course, if you will. Sure. And you look at the debt snowball and you're like, what if we just put the whole snowball together and give you, you know, maybe the rate looks higher, but the payment is going to make that snowball like it's really going to be impactful. You know, like to your point, it's 22 years left on a 30 year, paying it off in less than half the time. Yes. And paying off all your other debt at the same time. You yes. got to look at all the pictures. Um, so how does somebody, let's just say, you know, let's just say I, I get a million views and everybody calls you, you like, obviously you'll be overwhelmed. Like how does somebody look at this on their own? They're like, how, where, where do they find these? ideas and how do they actually look at the numbers or is there a place that they can go to kind of digest some of these things or a, a sheet online or or maybe they do just call you to kind of work through some of these things because it seems like this isn't like it's not rocket science but it does take someone that actually cares to walk them through the process absolutely so i don't think there's any particular resource that someone could go to and understand this uh, just like someone you know th that's like the difference between trying to go to td ameritrade or or one of the e-trade places that you're you're paying, you know, five bucks a trade. I mean, mm. what are you getting out of that, right? Sir, you know, you're making good choices, making bad choices. You just don't have that expertise, right? right? So I don't handle the mortgage from the start to finish. There's no way I could. I'm going to close three, four hundred loans this year. I just could not. If I did, if I tried to do that, I would be a horrible mortgage officer, and no one would ever call me back. I'd never get any past client referrals, <laughs> right? So I've got a team. Um, of staff that are amazing. They work so much harder than me. I'm blessed to have them. I don't deserve them. But I have a team that handles the loan after the loan starts, right? right. So I'm the guy that structures it. I'm the guy that advises. I'm the guy that coaches. I'm the guy that, that says, I, I pull the credit and I say, hey, here's the numbers. I think this is a good idea. And I, I probably tell more people no on refinances than I tell yes. People come and say, hey, I want to refinance. And I'm like, you know, I said, I don't see any benefit here. I don't think you should. I'll do it for you. I'll make some money, but I don't think that's the right move for you. So I'm talking to everybody on the upfront. Now, once the loan starts, I don't know what's going on with it. Um, and, you know, right today, you know, I've got 67 active loans in my company, and I couldn't tell you anything about them, but I've got really talented staff that's going to give that white glove concierge service to get them to the closing table. Right. Um, and that's how we have so many amazing reviews on Google and everything. But, you know, that first part, it takes a human, right? You, you just, you can't replace that with AI or with, with a computer, at least not, not AI that's, that's designed yet. Um, it has to be somebody that's actually understanding you mm -hmm. as a human, you as a, as a family, what your financial goals are, what your financial situation is, what, you know, what your debts are, what your, understanding you, what your hobbies are, your, your wife, your kids, you know, understanding you right. to, to give you the right advice. Right. So let me let me flip it around a different way then, because um, I agree with you. There, there is no this isn't kind of there's no AI that's going to replace humans in crafting personalized solutions like this. Right. What questions should people ask um, when they start to to kind of dive into really leveraging mortgages effectively? 
Sure. It should be, hey, what are you doing with mortgages? You know, understanding the, the mortgage advisor, you know, what is, what's he doing with his money? I'm happy to tell people what I invest in. Um, I'm happy to tell people about my properties that I have and, and that so they understand, you know, what my beliefs are, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, you know, your, your money goes where your heart is. Right. So if someone understands where your money is, they understand where your heart is. And then they, if they know where your heart is, they know how you're going to advise them. Right. I think that's great. Okay. Well, I love these strategies. I think that they're awesome. And I know if people have questions, they can obviously contact you and you're, yeah, sure. you're a human and kind of walk them through all these things. But I mean, we've had you on a couple of times and I, I love your passion for mortgages. Um, I love your passion for using debt effectively. Um, and, you know, just appreciate having you on. I'm sure we'll have you on again. Absolutely. Um, but thank you very much for, for sharing some of these strategies. Honored to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Thought in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow the podcast and leave a review. For more information on what's going on in the world of wealth, make sure to follow Family Fortune Financial on your favorite social media platforms. I look forward to you joining again soon.